0: Welcome to this sustainable life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Maxine Beda. Maxine, how are you?
1: I am great. How
0: are you? I'm very good. Glad to have you here. And for listeners, there may be a bit of construction in the background. Living in New York City is great. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to read a a bit about your background, and then hopefully we'll get into hearing about. Well, I'm going to jump ahead to your book, Unraveled: The Life and Death of a Garment, is about to come out in a couple days. I guess it'll be a little while ago by the time this gets out, and. A lot of people look around and they say, I just don't know what to do. If I knew what was going on behind the scenes, I would know to act. And it's kind of hard to find a lot of stuff out. And then you went and actually found this stuff out. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So a bit of background. You are the founder and director of the New Standard Institute. Uh, before that, you co-founded and were CEO of the fashion company Zadie. Did I say that right? Zadie or Zadie? I've only seen it in Zadie. And for its work in sustainability... It was named one of the world's most innovative companies by Fast Company. You've been recognized by Oprah in her Super Soul 100 for Leaders Elevating Humanity. Did you get to meet with Oprah?
1: I did. That was the best moment ever.
0: <laughs> I'd love to hear how she is in person. And let's see, you're an ambassador for the Rainforest Alliance. Did you work with Tansi Whelan, who's been a guest on the show?
1: I have been working with Tansi through her role at NYU, but we did not actually overlap when she was at Rainforest Alliance.
0: Okay, but we're all friends.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> You're
0: on Nation Swell. You've spoken at the world's leading conferences. Oh, wait, it doesn't mention in this bio you know, some of the conferences. Because I also know that you've spoken at the World Economic Forum, the UN, Clinton Global Initiative. You've been featured an expert in Bloomberg, Forbes, Business of Fashion, CNN, Huffington Post, everywhere. You're pretty big.
1: <laughs> all the stuff.
0: <laughs> uh, oh, wait, your education. You got your JD in Columbia Law. So that's a big switch.
1: That is a big switch.
0: Although from talking to you before, the law background seems like it was you're applying that a lot.
1: Yes. Yeah. It I'm very happy that I have that background because it has come to be play a pretty central role in the work that we're doing, especially on the both on the policy side and then thinking in terms of systems. I think law is a good just background for that.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the big things I've learned, you know, people see my PhD in physics and they think there's a lot of science in what I do. And there is a lot of science in nature. But there's also the MBA and there's all the leadership. And this is about people more than to me more than anything else. It's easy to look at the carbon dioxide levels or the mercury levels and the pollution levels and say, well, this is a matter of science, but it's our behavior that's causing these things.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: And it's easy to get lost, to lose that. And I would guess that the law degree is, that's about people resolving conflict, I think, I'm not a lawyer.
1: Yeah. and And I think about The system in which our society operates is a legal system. So if you change laws, you can also change the system.
0: I'm curious to ask about your moving from law to fashion. I'm also curious to jump into the book. Which would be the better entry point for you?
1: Maybe the first one, and that would lead to the talking about the book. Bring it on. Okay. (laughs) Wait, now I've forgotten what your question was. It was
0: You're a lawyer and you could have, I mean, actually. I left out from your bio that you began your career in international law, working at the Rwandan criminal tribunal. Is that, that I can't help, but ask about that.
1: (laughs) Well, that is an an entirely different episode altogether. But what, what I can say is I think as I was uh, working at the Rwandan tribunal, which is uh, was located in Tanzania, not Rwanda, I began to think about systems and I thought about, you know, I could, devote my career to prosecuting one case. And the case that I was on was uh, had gone on for 12 years. It was one of the longest cases on record. And that is a way to do justice. But I just kept thinking about like, what could we do? I mean, that was a prosecuting a genocide. So it's quite a bit different. But what can we do to resolve the issues before they become, you know, before lawyers need to come in and, and clean things up and serve justice. And so that was like, as I was working there, that's what I was thinking about. And that is what led me ultimately down this path, focused on apparel because apparel has these very long supply chains. And so like, when we think about like global development, it ends up being about apparel too, because Clothing production is often used as like, it's considered like a stepping stone on the way to development, although it hasn't necessarily always been so successful in doing that. So that was how I began to think about clothing was actually in Tanzania. And I was there like in my off time away from the tribunal, I would go to visit markets. And it was, I grew up in Minnesota, (laughs) the land where Target was born and the largest mall in the United States. And so I knew how things were sold to me, but it was the first time that I really got to see how things were made. And so I would go to markets and I had you know this kind of game of tracking down where those things in the markets came from and learning about it. And I remember something that like should have been so obvious, but wasn't to me that I went, there were these really beautiful baskets that I was had this idea that I would collect and bring back. And I found the town where they were made. And I went there. And like as I arrived on the main street, one side was all basket uh, stalls, selling baskets. And on the other side of the street were all um, fish stalls. And I was like, that's so random. Why would a town be known for like dried fish and baskets? And then I walked into the town and I saw that it was on the banks of a river. And so that explains the fish. And then that the baskets grew, came from, sorry, not grew. They were made by reeds, which also grow by the river. And that, so it, it absolutely made sense. But it was like that weird aha moment for me where I was like, I had no, I realized then that I had no connection to how things were produced.
0: That were part of nature.
1: Yeah, that were that were part of nature and like that I just saw this pretty basket. And so that became like this obsession <laughs> with me that has made, you know, remain to this day and was a you know, certainly a driving force for the creation of the book.
0: When I hear about a passion like that, I think, ah, oh, she's a geek like me because <laughs> we geeky types dig into something and we just can't, we have to get into it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You can't let it go. And then like in, in the law, when I, you know, the other part that I was exploring was like more just corporate law and I was doing credit derivative swaps. And I was like, I was creating <laughs> the legal instrument and I didn't even know what I was doing. And so I was, I didn't even know what, it, I didn't even know what it was. And so that I think, and it was credit derivative swaps that were part of the 2008 um, economic collapse. And so I think like what it has, that has demonstrated to me is like, we need to be grounded in re, in what's real and know what's real and understand those things. And so that became just something very important to me that I understood from the, my legal work is like, what is actually happening? You know, what is the widget that is being created and where and how?
0: Now, there's a bunch of entrepreneurship in between. And I want to, I want to hear about that. And I want to get to the company too. And is uh, the book too. Is that a direct route or should we jump to the book?
1: No, it's a, it's a direct route. So okay. from the Rwandan Criminal Tribunal, basically, I decided to, ultimately decided to develop a platform with a friend of mine that was called Zadie that was about selling goods With a story to tell. And then what we learned from that was that there weren't companies that knew the whole story (laughs) that we could promote. And so then through Zadie, we decided, okay, well, if there isn't a company that knows their whole supply chain, you know, down to the farm or oil rig, can we, is it even possible? So then through Zadie, we developed our own product, a line of clothing where we knew every stop of the way where it was produced and how it was produced. And from that I began this to get more and more involved and understand more and more about our clothing's impact on our world from environmentally and socially, from a social standpoint. And we would, at Zadie, we would put out this kind of like very easy consumer-facing information. And we had about the fashion's impact and we had these huge brands reaching out to say, thank you so much. This information is so helpful for me and my team and understanding fashion's role. And at that point I was like, what? You don't know any of, (laughs) you don't know this stuff. Like I thought, I thought the problem, I had thought that the problem was just that regular people didn't know. I had assumed up until that point that brands knew. And when I, you know, fully realized that I, you know, at the back of my mind, I thought, is the best way to create change to, produce another product or is it to bring this information forward and help people understand the role that they are playing either as at a brand or individuals and what people can do. So that was then the impetus to launch the New Standard Institute. And then with that, it was at the same time to start research and writing the book about the journey of a pair of jeans.
0: Before you get into that, now I have to ask, Questions that you ask yourself, which is more important or which is more valuable to, to bring in something new or to, to do what you did? I think overwhelmingly people make the other choice. I, th- I mean, I think a lot of people, I think like if someone thinks of how business can affect the environment, they think, oh, I'm going to make a sustainable brand and I'll make, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of examples of them. It, was that an obvious choice or was that something you had to labor over? And if, if so, what was the... What-
1: yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. It was not an obvious choice at all. And I remember when we were pitching Zadie and raising capital, that it's so funny to think about it now, but we would say, you know, our, like our parents' generation, they marched in the streets and burned their bras. We realized like, that's not the way to create change. We know that the way to create change is through business. And why did I say that? Because like, that was, I mean, that's like the whole... Sort of the neoliberal like training that I had throughout college and law school was like triple bottom line and businesses changing the world. And what I, you know, I wrestled with, you know, in thinking about change, like we could produce a garment that has as little impact as possible. It always will have impact because we're not growing trees and we could do that. And we were doing that, but if the rest of the world is consuming in this way And the brands don't even know what problems they are a part of. What am I really doing to move the needle? And so that was, you know, I ultimately kind of had to let go of my training about businesses change the world to realize, like, to actually go back to the heart of law and realize, like, actually, it's, you know, we develop these legal structures and laws that have led us to this place of rampant consumerism. And, you know, exploited labor and massive environmental implications. And so it was kind of, it was that return to law, even though in the, my legal education, that's not, it wasn't really presented to me in that way, I guess.
0: Had you read Anand Garadas' book, uh, Winner's Take All by then, before or after? I, I see a smile, so you, oh, you must have no, read it. It's,
1: it's funny. I have read it. But as I was going through this thing, before he wrote that book, there was a talk of his on YouTube he had participated in a program that I was being interviewed for. So I, I think I found him through that. It was before his book. I saw his presentation, which um, outlined, you know, he obviously went to it in more detail, ultimately in the book, but it was kind of the seeds of those ideas. And I just remember, like, just I reached out to him blindly after that. And we, you know, became Twitter friends as <laughs> as a result of that because I was like, yes, you're saying all the things that I've been thinking and saying it out loud and in the way that needs to be said. So that's why I was gave that little smart because I, um, it's definitely those ideas that were kind of in my head.
0: It reinforces the, the people who don't make the choice that you made, which I believe I've made as well. It's so tempting to feel like, look, I'm making money. I'm helping the world. People wouldn't buy this if they weren't, if it weren't making their life better. So I'm clearly helping them. And it's so tempting to feel that. And it, it, so much of it is in systems terms, it's, it's continuing to drive the system as opposed to changing the system. I always describe it as stepping on the gas, thinking it's the break, wanting congratulations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I even like, it is so baked into the system. Like I think about even in law school, you know, everything was catered towards working at a big law firm, you know, it was really the path of least resistance. And the, the law school like set up those interviews and there was an interview day with the big law firms. And then of course, you, law school is extremely expensive. So you're incentivized to go to a well-paying job to pay off those, that extreme expense. And then I remember speaking to, you know, the career services and asking like, you know, I'm really interested in kind of systems change and getting your ideas. And, you know, the thing presented to me was like, oh, well, one day after you do big law, you could do, you know, be an in-house counsel at a nonprofit. And I was like, that those are your ideas for me. <laughs> and so I think, you know, it really, and I understand like the incentive structures of the law school, but it is, it ends up doing that sort of those jobs is the, you know, the the path of least resistance and I you know society right now is kind of built up until at least recently, I think, built to give the social prestige to those types of positions.
0: So I, I we could go into that a lot more, but I, yeah. I wanted to go into that that decision process for you because I think a lot of listeners, I think almost everyone wants to do more than they are. And it, it looks hard to make the choice of like changing a system. I mean, in business they say cultural change is like, it's like impossible. It's really hard to change a culture. And, and that would be culture is like the business word for system. And, and yet if you actually go through it well, you meet Oprah, and it's not, it looks hard and it's not the well-worn path, but it's not jumping off a cliff either. In fact, it's, it may be jumping to the unknown. I, I imagine there was a, a leap of faith on your part. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, it was definitely jumping into the unknown and it was definitely, at least initially now I think culture has changed, but like the prestige like I had to work on my own ego because the prestige was just not there for like creating a nonprofit, trying to create a, trying to change a system. <laughs> but ultimately like I am, I feel so much more deeply rooted in what I am doing and like deeply happy. I do want to acknowledge, I think it's important that I don't want to place like guilt on anybody. Cause I think I also, you know, had the privilege of, you know, like having financial security to be able to like, take that jump. Um, So I knew that I at least wouldn't be on the streets. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I think that I want to acknowledge that because I think sometimes it's like, just follow your dreams, but we have to unpack the systems that inhibit people from being able to do that. But I, what I do think, and I completely agree with you is that once you do take that leap, there are so many more opportunities than, then certainly one can even fathom before making the switch, as I'm sure you've experienced.
0: Yes. In fact, do you know that quote that's often attributed to Goethe of... All right, now I have to get it out. <laughs> uh, let's see if I can find it really quick. Okay, I found the quote. So it's, uh, it's a little long. I'm going to put it in the text with, with this. Until one is committed, there's hesitancy, the chance to draw back. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there's one elementary truth that ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events, issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamed would have come his way.
1: I absolutely agree with that. Yeah, and I can see why that sparked that court <laughs> in your head. Yeah, <laughs> who
0: thinks, oh, it's never gonna work. And then, and then you find out people who've done stuff and like, it sounds like, oh, well, they just had all this, this um, access, or this, it happens once you choose. If you don't choose, you can't possibly dream of the things that will happen.
1: Yeah, and I there's I remember the CEO speaking, and somebody said like, "How did you do this? How did you like?" I don't know. Remember exactly the context. She's like, "I don't know. I just did it." <laughs> and I think there is something to that. It's just like in the act of doing and making that decision, things do happen.
0: Yeah, I had a student, one of my students, uh, actually she went to law school, uh, after I taught her undergrad at NYU, she took my class. So at grad school, she gets all these, I, I talked to her afterwards. She comes back to, to speak to uh, an alumni thing. And she says, all my classmates ask me, how can you get all these, these great internships with these professors? And you get these, uh, she was at Cardozo. So she was working with the innocence project. And they're like, how do you get those things? And she looks at me and she goes, Josh, I just ask." Like that's what you you taught in your class. Like just ask and they don't ask. They're like waiting for it to happen to them.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually in undergrad, like learned that from a boyfriend of mine, like used, oh, I was late for delivering an application to actually study, do study abroad through NYU. And I came back and I was late and and I came back and I cried. And I was just like, I can't believe I let this happen. I cannot believe like I got behind on that deadline. Like I can't go now. And I'm so stupid for letting that happen to me. And I was just all in a in a puddle. And he's like, why don't you go back to them and just see if they will accept your application even though you were a day late? And I was like, you can't do that. It's not the rules. <laughs> and he's like, go and try. And I did. And that like, it was such a learning moment for me. It's like, go and ask. Like, yeah, that's how things happen.
0: <laughs> Next thing you know, you're traveling all around the world finding out about how genes are made.
1: Jeans are made, exactly. <laughs>
0: So let's get back to your story.
1: Okay. So then, you know, that that as I was saying that that became this desire to like understand where things come from, um, and then to actually change the system is was the impetus to start the new standard institute. And what I wanted, you know, for my own background for for NSI for the new standard institute was to actually know not just where like the process of how to make the garment with the lowest impact, but how, what does the average, you know, pair of jeans actually look like? What is that process? And so that was the the impetus to do the research for the book. And what started off, you know, as a book about the story of a pair of jeans ended up becoming a story of our global and local economy and kind of how it's become so broken, how The environmental crisis is wrapped up in that and ultimately what we can do about it. So it became a bigger story (laughs) than I was anticipating, but it finally kind of connected the dots to all of the questions and things that I've been thinking about from even, you know, that we've already discussed.
0: You said broken, and I can't help but think also obfuscated. I, I mean, a couple generations ago, there was iPencil. That essay about how, you know, no one person makes a pencil. It comes from all over the place. And the underlying spirit of that was what a wonderful system we have, where everyone can do their little thing and the invisible handle makes it work. And I feel like now it's not how wonderful it is that all these things work together, but how much we hide. I mean, iPencil isn't about how people are being uh, working in sweatshops and and the rivers are running with the color of the dye, but that's our world today. It's not. There seems to be a fair amount of deliberate obfuscation. Mm
1: -hmm. No, I think you're absolutely right to highlight that language. You know, and the the book is really a story about how, like, even if we take globalization, right, it tends to be described as this thing that just happened. (laughs) And it's not. There were actors involved in making it happen and making it happen in the way that it did. Where all of the protections, environmental and social protections that we fought and created in the United States, it's not that they were ignored. They were, it was actively lobbied to not have those protections be included in kind of the global framework and you know, global trade agreements that we have. So I I think it's it's really important to highlight that the system that we have now is not, it shouldn't be in the passive, like it was an active system that was created and maybe people wanted to the creators of that system wanted to ignore the consequences of it, but it was very intentionally created. Even the concept of that we now you know people tend to see themselves as consumers, that was a very active effort from the the 1950s of policymakers, to get citizens to see their primary identity as consumers and not citizens. Yeah, I completely agree with you that it's critical to highlight that these systems are created by people and so they can also be changed by people.
0: Can you share a story of one of these discoveries? And I'm, I'm curious as how you'd find these things out, especially if you've just things that you might've seen that other people have not seen. And also the feelings that that engenders of the discovery, and I mean, when you talk about it's a system of all these players doing all these different things. We are part of that system, and we're. I mean, I bought still clothes at H and M, not for a long time. I mean, I just don't think I could buy from them anymore. But I'm going in. I'm like, how could this possibly be? I don't know, but it's a pretty cheap shirt. It fits my budget.
1: <laughs> I think so. One one earliest story that I uncovered from the book, or in doing research for the book, was Louis the Fourteenth, the who's known as the Sun King who is responsible for developing Versailles. And the story goes that he, I was trying to understand the origin of of fashion and fashion consumption and fashion seasons and like where that all started. And that's, it led me to um, Louis the (laughs) 14th. And what happened was Louis the 14th and his finance minister at the time when he came into power, Spain, due to colonialism, was the regional superpower. And so the Sun King, together with his finance minister, were thinking of ways to become the regional superpower and take over from Spain. And so what they did is they realized that clothing can be an important economic driver. And so they did a couple of things. First, they developed what we would now call protectionist measures, So they insisted that any clothing had to be produced within the country. And then critically, they introduced the whole entire concept of the fashion season. Because at the time, Spain, because they were the economic superpower, also drove the fashions of the time. And the Spanish style was like to wear all black all the time, very austere, didn't change, immutable. And so the Sun King and his finance minister said, well, you know, if we can create this idea of a fashion calendar, then people would need to change their clothing every season, get new clothing every season. That is like what we would call, you know, obsolescence. And then because it was all produced domestically, it became the economic driver for France, which has echoes today because the, you know, the largest companies of France even today are still fashion companies like LVMH. And so that just that realization, I was like, and there is a quote, which I get to in the book, which the finance minister said that fashion was to France, what the minds of uh, Peru were to Spain. And that to me was such an eye opening moment of research where I just I understood that this has always been, you know, clothing and consumption has been to be an economic driver and to have rich people become even more rich. It's not an innate thing that we always want to have new clothes and a like overflowing closet. <laughs> it's something that has been very deliberately designed for economic gains. And so that like that was just an, an eye-opening moment for me to understand just the power of clothing and where our consumption kind of behavior even begins. Is it,
0: I'm trying to think of the feeling it's like because I'm feeling it too. I mean, you told me that story before and it, it partly i think well there must be something like humans seem to like novelty so it's probably tapping into something that was there before that on the other hand i feel like i'm being played i feel like i'm being used and for someone else's benefit that doesn't really benefit me in fact it incites in me a craving and that's really easy to get people to crave stuff like outrage craving mm-hmm. these are things that are really easy to evoke and provoke in people and just so this King can do his thing. And LVMH, I was just looking at the richest people in the world for some, for my book and and the, what is it? The, the CEO or an heir of LVMH is, is always in there.
1: The CEO. Yeah. Yeah. He was uh, this past week, momentarily the wealthiest person in the world but he, he's gone down in his ranking since.
0: All out of this planned obsolescence. There's some quote that says like fashion is so ugly that it has to, what, do you know this quote like it, it's so ugly that we have to get rid of it every year. Something like that.
1: Oh. <laughs> that sounds about right. I agree with you. It taps into kind of our baser instincts. And I, I remember I spoke for the book to a psychologist who mostly studied food and food consumption and the habits around food. And, you know, she was saying from a Actually, what's going on in your brain perspective, you know, that fast fashion consumption is very parallel to, you know, fast food consumption in that it's, you know, you get that dopamine high and that's why kind of these disposable fashion business models are so successful. And then you pair that with digital media and the kind of status involved uh, with digital media and you can see why, you know, consumption is just completely running rampant and for ultimately emotionally very detrimental effects
0: oh man yeah I've been compiling not compiling but like thinking of the industries that are built on craving so gambling you know and then food and fashion of course I just didn't didn't think of it but like cell phones and all the apps on the cell phones and video games and social media so fashion got to put that one in there too
1: yeah I mean because social media I feel like the story so far of social media is you know that it creates political polarization that it you know captures our minds, but it operates off of ads and those ads get us to purchase things, <laughs> and that you know that exposure isn't just having you know the psychological repercussions but the then ultimately the environmental repercussions as well because of the impact of creating a system where clothing is disposable.
0: You've seen the system firsthand. And I presume that listeners of this podcast have seen the true cost. I, that's my main exposure. I mean, there's lots of articles, but I don't think they'll cover the depth that you've seen it with. And they've reading an article, watching movies, not seeing it with your, you've seen it with your own eyes and, and heard the sounds and felt the temperature. Can you give us an overview of the places you went and maybe some of the scenes that you witnessed?
1: Yeah. So I, basically went in my own travels went in sequential order of the creation, sale and destruction of a pair of jeans. So I started my research in Texas, walking through some uh, cotton farms and speaking to cotton farmers and hearing their stories about how like a day of rain can change their entire <laughs> economic prospects for the you know for the entire year. Like being As a person who's so disconnected from that, it was really eye-opening just to see, you know, the the stressful lives that farmers do have. And then I spoke to both a conventional, you can't see that I'm putting air quotes on conventional and organic cotton farmer, and just understanding what are the incentives they had and the reasons why they went on their separate paths. Um, And it was interesting because the two cotton farmers in Texas are know each other and are friends, but have nonetheless gone down these very different. And I think, you know, it, it kind of touches in Josh of what we were speaking about earlier, which is, you know, the conventional farmer was doing that path of least resistance. He's like, this is how my dad did it. This is like, I probably should be doing it differently, but I'm just too lazy. Like change is scary. And the organic Farmer said, you know, he's a natural tinkerer and, you know, always trying new things. And that's what led him, you know, on this kind of more innovative path. So, you know, seeing, seeing the incentives there and, and the real financial risk it is for organic farmers because they have to change their practices, which is an added expense, three years before they might get any financial benefit from it. So understanding those things helped me understand kind of the policy that we should be thinking about in creating the right incentives for farmers. Anyway, from there then I traveled to China, which is where the the cotton bale which would come, you know, from Texas to China and I saw the bales then in China get opened up. So I really could connect the exact dots from it's the place I left it in Texas to China. And I think just the In China, the scale of growth, I mean, we tend, you know, there's that American exceptionalism that we tend in America to like think about our, just our own role in the world, but China is off doing (laughs) its own thing at just a pace that is really like, I of course read about it, but seeing on the train, you know, but from city to city, seeing entire new cities be, you know, built up from scratch was just, just pretty insane. And then on that train, there's a, it was something like, if you are caught without a ticket, you will get your like identity kind of will be docked. And it was like, even in terms of like an ability to like get alone. And just like that to me was like, oh my God, that level of like social control was something that again, I'd read about, but didn't really understand until being there. And then that, you know, in, in China, that was like my first place of seeing these black rivers. And every place I went, the rivers just became increasingly more black. And I remember speaking to and somebody working on cleaning up the rivers or trying to in China. He's like, no, no, this is this is a clean river. I was like, what? It's black and glistening, and my eyes hurt just being next to it. Like, how is this a clean river? But then when I went to, so China's where most global uh, textile production is, you see the Black Rivers because of the lack of controls of the effluence from the textile dyes and finishes that are not sufficiently regulated and end up going into the rivers.
0: And, And these dyes are... I have this image of they're pressing flowers and getting plants out uh, like dyes from that, <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. but it's it's like Dow Dupont type stuff.
1: Yeah, and that's the other thing because you mentioned Dupont, like the chemical industry is the fashion industry. The oil industry is the fashion industry because it's you know these the chemical companies that are creating both the dyes and finishes that end up in the river, and that's the chemical companies that are creating the polyester fibers to begin with from you know, derived from fossil fuels, mostly oil.
0: So it's not just dyes that are making it black. It's also just the materials, the fabrics, the material of the fabric is also getting in there. So
1: um, it's not the material, but the dyes are only one chemical (laughs) um, applied to create a fabric. There's also a lot, there is benign, you know, things like starch, but then there are, which when unregulated end up killing all the fish. But there are then less benign chemicals that aren't dyes that are harder to track because they're not a color. And that's like, you know, finishing dyes because we expect like high performance from our material, like being wrinkle resistant or fire retardant, things like that. So there's a, a whole host of chemicals that are applied to our clothing. And then when we do that step in, Low regulation are yeah in low regulation areas they end up doing the cheapest thing, which is just dumping that into into rivers, which is then used for agriculture. Yeah, and and that's like the scene was going to this dye house, getting a tour of the dye house, going out sorry a wash house, going saying thank you to the person who was guiding us, and then kind of covertly going to the back of the factory. Just seeing this. First, I heard the sound; it was gurgling, like kind of bubbling water. And then I followed that sound and just saw this black stream of effluence going into this already very dark gray river. And it was glistening; just the the river was glistening with oil. And then, as I was walking down, there were agricultural plots like on that river, be, you know, using the water from that river. And then when I went back home and did the desk research to see the health implications from of communities using that water for their food, pretty devastating.
0: So I want people to read the book to get them more detail on China. Can we jump forward to
1: Bangladesh, maybe
0: at the purchase or maybe at the end of life?
1: Well, I'll just have to, just because I want to get through at least the kind of high level. So in China, the textiles produced... Then I went to Bangladesh and Sri Lanka to see where the cut and sew was taking place. And, you know, I think the important thing to acknowledge about clothing is that the way in which we produce it has not changed significantly in the past 100 years. So it still requires a person, generally a woman, sitting at a sewing machine. And I think if listeners look at the clothing that they're wearing, you know, as they're listening and look at the scenes, all of that is done by hand, you know, on a sewing machine. So that's really when we think about the labor implications and why Bangladesh, Vietnam, Cambodia are becoming increasingly significant players in the apparel industry is because they have some of the cheapest labor wages globally.
0: And I would guess cheapest labor means they have the lowest regulations exactly. and therefore the biggest health and safety implications.
1: Yep. And so I went to both visit the the actual garment factories and then went to visit garment factory women workers homes and you know it was a room this woman's room was smaller than my bath, you know, New York bathroom which is already small. And somehow that is where her her husband and her two children lived with a tin roof and Bangladesh is has a lot of rain so i honestly just don't know how they exist but that is you know when where the the major labor issues are happening is in the cut and sew and then i came back to the us and i went and visited a distribution center and spoke to distribution workers and i focused on amazon because they are the largest player and that i think the thing that is to me that was really striking is, and again, somebody who has not had to do a lot of manual labor, or certainly not the kind that was happening within Amazon, is in speaking to the women of the in the garment sector, every, you know, there are industrial engineers hired at these firms so that every second is time to their movement. And there are these big production lines. So there's something like 40 people working in a line, each having their own sewing machine. And at the start is just fabric. And at the end is your jacket or pair of jeans. So they each do just like one component and it's like one movement. And just the really devastating part is not just the conditions in which the hours and the wages, but is the mind numbing work of doing things over and over again at such intense speed. And that in speaking to distribution workers at the Amazon facilities was a very similar conversation in that everything is timed to the second, that you don't actually have to ever use your head, you know, your own thought process, how that's all kind of taken out and the impact that that has on one's character to not, you know, to to really be seen as a machine only to be ultimately replaced by one. And I think that was just kind of a more devastating part of the, of the supply chain to see anyway. So then we get to the um, get to how that's, gets to clothing to our door. And then we wear our clothing maybe. (laughs) And there are some surveys in there. There's not a ton of research and there needs to be more, but there are some surveys of um, women in the UK that, that, they're wearing their garments on average seven times before getting rid of it. So it's like you have all of these resources. And I should just mention, since we haven't spoken about it, that clothing is believed to anywhere from four to 8% of total greenhouse gas emissions globally. And even the more conservative estimate of 4% would be more than France, Germany, and the UK combined. So it's a huge greenhouse gas contributor. And then we're only wearing this very resource intensive product for very little time. So that I think is just an important thing to recognize. And then the last bit of the journey, I I spoke to shoppers and psychologists and looked at the research behind kind of seasons and consumerism. And then the last chapter of the book or the second to last chapter of the book is looking at where clothing goes when we get rid of it, both through the donation system and when we throw it in the trash.
0: I feel like that's gonna be just like yet more of the same except in a new way.
1: Yeah, it's not it's not happy.
0: (laughs) If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors or friends. Learn the four step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's JoshuaSpodek.com slash donate. I also want to go back to the, when you talk about, Okay, so there's a system that creates really cheap clothing. Something similar is happening with food as well. I mean, and when I talk about shopping in a farmer's market, people are very quick to say, Josh, you don't know what it's like to be a single mom in a food desert with three kids and three jobs, and she doesn't have time to do X. And so she's got to go to McDonald's. I think that if people think that somehow that whole system is going to serve them and they're going to get a benefit from it, okay, if you look at if you forget about the the cost to everybody else, if they think that they're going to benefit from it at everyone else's expense and not get entrapped in that system as well. I think they're kidding themselves. I, McDonald's is not doing anyone any favors. It is not giving people extra time. It's certainly not giving them extra nutrition. It's the cause of the, it's, it's it and the system it's in are the cause of people not having time and money. Yeah. They are extracting, not, they're not doing you a favor. They're trapping you in the system as well. Yes. So when I actually added up all my costs for the year on food for 2019 before the pandemic, I spent less money than the average American on food. And I don't have the economies of scale. Of, it's just me. And that's even you now. if you took the subsidies that they got, the fast food companies got and put that into vegetables, the difference would be far greater. But even with those subsidies in, in favor, in helping them, it still works out in favor this way. And I would think that something similar is happening with fashion, with clothing as well.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think the wages of garment workers and the wages, you know, within distribution facilities are really low. And the time, you know, it leaves in the garment industry, even to get minimum wage, you have to do your maximum overtime. And, you know, the, the same is true in our economy today where you know people have to have multiple jobs just to get by. So it is very much embedded in the system that they're not then given the leisure of time to cook said food. You know, and I think McDonald's is is similar to the fast fashion companies in terms of, you know, the similar issue in terms of pay, where you're not creating a structure that allows people to go to the farmer's market and have the leisure of cooking their food. And not just the leisure of time, but in speaking to an an Amazon worker, they're like, my job is so mind numbing that when I get home, the only thing I can do is turn on the TV. Like it's, that's the only mental energy that they have. So it's, it's really like, if we want to solve these larger environmental issues, like we have to solve the social issues as well, because they're very much interconnected.
0: I'm glad to hear that. That yeah. Back to People and how we relate to each other, and I want to ask a couple of questions before getting to the more personal stuff of the or the, the commitment. So I shop I think almost exclusively, maybe exclusively at uh, thrift shops, and I'm curious how that affect if what a difference that makes. Because I've written a bunch of posts on how thrift shops. Now I think they give people this outlet of thinking oh, I'll get whatever, and then I'll, I'll take it to the thrift shop and I'll help some people. But the lines to drop stuff off at thrift shop at thrift shops, at least around me, are longer than the lines to buy stuff. So I think that they're like um, you know, if carbon offsets with flying, it psychologically enables you to to drive that system more. While thinking, stepping on the gas, thinking it's a break, wanting congratulations.
1: Yeah, I think there is, I do not critique you for shopping, for thrifting as as your means of purchasing. But what I think we do need to recognize in these systems is the evidence, you know, about the moral hazard that is there. You know, the moral hazard is what you were just speaking about, which is that there seems to be evidence that having the donation place and thinking that that is an outlet or even the resale destinations like Depop and the Real Real that have become really popular in the past couple of years, that what it's doing is for the people who are consuming the original good, the, the Virgin product, they're saying like, oh, well, I can just donate this or resell it and somebody else is going to enjoy it. And if, that, if knowing that actually makes you purchase more things, we're not driving resource use down. And there was a paper that I read that was not about fashion. They, I didn't, couldn't find one, but it was about paper towel use in bathrooms. And they, they did this study where they compared a situation of a bathroom that had a recycling symbol on the um, paper towel trash, and then they had the other one did not. And in the scenario where there was that recycling symbol, people ended up using more paper towel because they thought it was being recycled.
0: Yeah, I'll give you another example of that. Trader Joe's. Everything they sell is packaged. Virtually everything they sell is packaged. And once you put the word recycle on something, everybody feels like, oh, someone else is causing all these problems, but not me. I'm one of the good guys. And I mean, we all know... (sighs) Yeah, if something has recycling on it, it means it's garbage. To me, dropping something off at Goodwill, in my mind, is dropping something off on some South Pacific island beach. And along with a billion other people's stuff.
1: And it is. Like, I have been to Accra, Ghana, to the beaches of Accra, and it is full of our clothing. <laughs> because that is ultimately where it ends up. And it, you know, in communities that do not have the, the same abilities as we do, even to, to handle trash.
0: Now, I want to leave as a teaser for the listener. Does the book tell people what, I mean, things that they can do to act?
1: Yes, it is not.
0: I want to give that away because I want them to read the book.
1: It is not all doom and gloom. The point in telling the story is actually to demonstrate how we are in control over changing that story. And, you know, there's a big part of the story is, you know, as we were speaking about how we were, have been trained to see ourselves as consumers. But if we retrain ourselves to see ourselves as citizens, we can, you know, we can, Fundamentally change these systems, and I go into in the book both what we can do from you know personal purchasing choices, how to think about that, and how to make those decisions, which I think can be so confusing given the a lot of confusion in the marketing around sustainable fashion, and then how we can change the laws so that these systems, so that you know brands operating in these systems don't you know can operate within the bounds of the planet where people are not exploited. Um, and all of that is possible. We just have to use our voice.
0: I think there's a mental shift that happens that when you feel helpless and powerless and someone gives you information like this is what's happening in Bangladesh, this is what's happening in China. If you feel helpless and powerless, you're like, stop telling me this. I yeah. can't do anything about it. And you want to disconnect yep. from the consequences of, of your own actions. When you feel powerful and you know what's going on and you feel what you do can make a difference. And of course what you do affects everyone, then you do want to know. And I believe that this is a route toward empathy, compassion, connection, community. And these people on the far side of the world, they're our brothers and sisters. They're us. They're and for that matter, we're caught in that system too.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's to me that the this journey has been so empowering. I don't, you know, I don't go to bed and I think like, oh, like the world is going to hell. I see how our efforts can make a significant difference. And that is, you know, that's definitely a story of empowerment. And I, you know, the, the book is a, a balance of, you know, stick with me (laughs) through this journey, because ultimately we can see how we, we change it and I think there always seems to be this thing, in when we talk about the environment, you know, where people are like don't say the bad thing because then people will just disappear. But I, I have um, a lot of faith in people that we can do these things side by side. You know, learn about the reality and learn how we actually can shape a different future.
0: Yeah, I feel like if it's it's empowering, and this is a book about fashion, but this is a book about our modern world. Yep. Am I reading that right? Yep. And it could be food. It could be cell phones and
1: cars. De- computers yeah. and yeah.
0: cars and everything. Now I want to switch over to okay. <laughs> and, and we talked about this before, but I, I yeah. want to walk you through it. That the what does the environment mean to you? What, I mean, you didn't have to do all this. You you made a, a few choices along the way that although you a JD you could have gone to do lots of other things. When you think about the environment, what what motivates you? Not not what are the goals in the future, like what you're trying to change later, but what in your, inside you is driving. Uh, Where does it come from?
1: I mean, I guess I don't make a distinction between like me, humans and nature. Like we are all a part of nature. The language has been presented to us that like humans are somehow not nature. And Johan Hari has a good quote about this, that we are not, oh, we are not machines that are broken. We are, I'm butchering this. I should also be Googling it too. We are like, we are animals with needs. And I think that that has always, that quote really resonated with me. And I think about that, you know, we are, we are ultimately, we are animals and I think getting our own kind of psychology back in balance with the broader natural system is probably like a thing, you know, that, that motivates me. And I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm a curious person and I from that curiosity have been able to have the leisure of reading and speaking to people to see how it, is all connected. And I'm just motivated to share, you know, what I've been, the stories that I've been able to gather, you know, to demonstrate that these are all very mutable, changeable things if we just do it.
0: When you say that we're part of nature, that we are animals, what is nature for you? I think a lot of people take for granted, like some people, their vision of a beach is so clearly in nature, but someone else it's trees and for someone else it's their pet and what is it for you? What what are we a part of? Like physically, what do you... Or...
1: I mean, I, I don't like think about a vast forest or, or you know, I'm pointing there. I can see the river from my apartment. I don't think about that. Like the desk of which I'm working on, which is made of wood, is nature. The metal that is the computer in which I'm speaking to you is nature. Like we are part of nature. Even the bad stuff, even the landfill full of clothing is nature. It's us abusing it, but it is nature. I don't see... A distinction. I see a, a system that has a natural system that has really gone awry that is fighting and, you know, destroying the, our ecosystem, but it's all part of the natural world.
0: Do you have a personal experience that, of this? I mean, you're pointing at your desk and you're indicating here and now, but I mean where did that come from? I
1: think it came back from the part of the conversation at the very beginning where I was like doing those credit derivative swaps that were not like, it was all a a thing on paper. Like it was all a concept that I really wanted to understand how the widget gets made. And I think that has been like my, that driving force of just like, how does nature and systems like connect us all together?
0: So I'm reading, a lot of people, when I ask this question, they talk about an experience camping or an experience hiking or sailing or something like that. And in you, I read it more as kind of what got me into studying math back in college of just how I would learn about how fish in a pond would grow and then money in the bank would grow and the same equation would describe both. And I was like, how is that possible? Yeah. And then you touch this thing here and something over there moves and this interconnectedness. And, you know, in a watch, you turn one dial and the and the other dial turns at the, you know, it's all gears connected to each other. In nature, it's not so clear. Maybe in Darwin's um, uh, Origin of Species, I think it's a like the closing paragraph where he's sitting on the riverbank and he's looking at the a tangled, he's just looking at the plants and animals, all, you know, one grows and eats the other and the other protects the other. And And it's beautiful, stunningly beautiful of how everything is connected. Everything works together. Am I reading that right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. It is very much about that whole system, which I think we're taught is this very linear system, but it's not. I think it's Professor Coleman who's written this wonderful book about our political divides. But you know, talking about how the systems—it's either a clock system or a cloud system—and we tend to like be taught about things. It's funny that you mention a watch. You know that that things are linear and kind of these closed in systems. But in fact, like both our human and natural systems are more like clouds where, you know, one thing can have these like repercussions that you only see later in these other places that you wouldn't like even think about. So, yeah, I definitely, that's maybe how my brain works or how I've come to think of the world.
0: Well, I certainly I find it beautiful. I mean, that's what physics is. Well, science physics tends to simplify things. We look at the very basic, basic, basic things, but we also, that's what everyone thinks, but it's really about how everything's connected as well. And I have to share a physics comment of, I forget who it was. Like, if you want to make a pizza from scratch, do you start with flour? Well, where do you get the wheat from? Do you start with wheat berries? And and so the physicist, uh, it's like Enrico Fermi or someone like that stature, I think he goes, in order to make a pizza from scratch, first you have to start with a a new universe.
1: (laughs) It's totally true, yeah. And I guess I've always thought it like as a kid. I always really liked infrastructure. I found it so fascinating. I was like, but how does it get to be? And like you know, even even as a kid, I was like, how is food so cheap relatively? If you think about like everything that has just gone into it. So I think I was always I don't know curious about those things from the beginning.
0: Well, given this curiosity, this the uh, if I read it right, a wonder of the interconnectedness of things, a fascination. If I'm if I'm reading right then I invite you, and this is at your option, to think of something you could do to act on those feelings. Now, there are lots of other feelings that we talked about earlier about what you witnessed in research for the book. And a lot of people, what I didn't say is what's the most important thing you can do, or what, what can you fix, how to fix the world. You will have an impact on the world, but that's not the point. It's just to act on those feelings of wonder and connectedness and with three conditions. If you do it, it has to be something that you do with your own hands. So not I'll get someone else to do something or I'll donate someplace that it's something new, something you're not already doing. Now it doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. It could be just a trial. It could be big. It could be small. That's not the point. And that it's, uh, and it has some physical component. So not just reading a book or watching a movie, uh, I mean, by all means do those things, but take the next step. If you do to act on it, but based on those feelings.
1: Yes, I have one. (laughs) Please share. (laughs) I would like to commit to composting because I don't do that at the moment. Um, And I like it's just a new habit formation. And I know that uh, organic matter in landfill is a significant greenhouse gas um, emitter within landfill. So I would like to challenge myself to do that.
0: Ah, And I know in previous times I've asked you, you're in Manhattan, you're in New York?
1: I'm in Brooklyn. Brooklyn.
0: Brooklyn. Oh, I think, oh, you guys used to have curbside, but then it stopped because of the pandemic, but it's going to restart soon.
1: Yeah, they never got curbside to our, to, I live in a large building, but I know I can drop it off at a farmer's market down the road. So I just have to figure out those logistics.
0: Then my next step in this is to ask to make it a smart goal. So uh, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bound. And it sounds pretty specific, but for how how much would you do it? For how long? And how, not how long? for the rest of your life. I mean, how long would you have to do it in order that if I ask you how it, it went, if you come back for a second episode, not even ha- just for you to be able to say, this is how it's gone so far, because maybe you'll stop. I, I don't want to force you into something.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like, I think about it in, in terms of habit formation and like what it requires is just figuring out the logistics of how I get my organic matter to the like regional compost place and like in which way I am supposed to separate it and what is the like container in which I am supposed to keep it in. So I would like to, for time bound, I would like to do it for six months because I think in the summer it might be easier because it's warmer to walk (laughs) to drop it off, but it would be more challenging in the winter. And so having that, like getting through that challenge, I think would help me make it a more longer term commitment.
0: I invite you back for a second episode to share how it's gone. And when do you think you'll be able to share how it's gone so far? Should we do it in six months?
1: I think so. Yeah.
0: Okay. Then after we stop recording, but before we hang up, uh, I propose we get out the calendars and and schedule a time to have the second episode. I love it. And I'll share, I'm going to share it because I'm in New York and and compost. And it took me a long time that my sister and mom were like, just compost. And I was like, ah, it sounds kind of complicated. And now it's not, you know, I have a, a bowl on my countertop where I just throw the scraps. When that bowl gets full, I put it in a bag, which normally I put in the freezer. I don't know if I've told you that my fridge has been unplugged for, yes. and I'm, I'm now in my seventh month and I keep saying I'll plug it in real soon, but I keep food keeps tasting good. <laughs> so it's actually harder for me in the summer because I'm not refrigerating it. And so the compost starts decom- or the food scraps. I have food scraps. It becomes compost later, but yes. it starts composting now. Yes, and you know I just take it to the Union Square every now and then and drop it off, and
1: yeah, but what do you have to, what do you have to bring it in? Are those those blue bags?
0: I use the same bag, you know it's a bag from the store, integral yoga that went out of business several years ago, and i just I've been using the same bag. I just drop the stuff off, take the bag back home. oh, okay. they have big garbage cans, and I just empty it into the garbage can, okay, and then take the bag back. Most people leave the bags there, but that's because they're getting new plastic bags, which I'm not doing got it and Here's a little bonus. This may or may not work out for you. When you meet someone over a compost garbage can and you've just dropped off your food scraps and they've dropped off theirs, all interactions there are very friendly. You, you see what you've been eating over the past couple of weeks and what the other has been eating. And it's uh, and you both have in common that you've been sharing food scraps in your house that you now go out of your way to bring to a farmer's market. And so you may have a different experience. Maybe you'll get into fight. But my experience is, I
1: can't imagine imagine that would be a place to get into a fight.
0: (laughs) And they have signs there that say what you can put in, what you can't put in, because it'll be different in different places. Yes.
1: That actually reminds me, I'm planning an event and because it was of NSI, they were saying, normally we would do this in plastic containers, but, you know, we'll do this paper one. And so they sent me a picture. And so then I was that annoying person responded like, is this a polyline paper thing? And they, um, I, no, I didn't even say, I said, is it recyclable? She, they responded, it's polylined and recyclable in any place that like has the facilities to recycle such products. And I was like, but you're operating in New York. And so you could have at least done the due diligence to know that New York does not recycle such products. So you think it's more sustainable because it's paper, but you're going to, you're going to put this in the recycling bin and it's only going to end up in the trash. Anyway, I think there's a lot of, I was thinking about that because you were, I think people don't understand that the systems are different from one municipality to another.
0: And I'm going to go one step further on that. A lot of people think, oh, well, how much more do I have to figure out? But it goes back to what I said before, that when you make the switch, the mindset shift, yep. then when you hear something like that, you know, that on the other side of it is more connection to more people in a way that like the, the flip side you know, it's not, if they're not using plastic, but then using paper that's lined with plastic, then you think, oh, I, can't, I just give up. Or you take the next step and you figure out what, you know, people, turns out people lived before plastic. And there are solutions out there. And, you know, there's reusable containers and other ways of doing I, I don't know what the situation was, so I can't tell what the solution would be. But every time, you know, I, my CSA this past winter, because of COVID, they were saying we have to put everything in plastic. So, the first couple of times I picked it up, I was thinking, oh, I guess I'll just deal with it. And then I said, the next time I went, I was like, can I do something about this and not get the plastic? And so that's just the volunteers who man the, the station. It's not the farm. So I said, talk to the farm. Now, most people would say, you're really bothering them. It's like bad enough they got the COVID problem that they have to deal with. It, now you're going to call them up and complain. So I called them or I wrote them, and the guy writes back and says, thank you. We can't stand this plastic either. And the only feedback we get from customers is complaining when something's wilted. So we have to, we, but believing that we are helping the, for that. Yeah. The, eating the consumer at the end, the citizen at the end, they, we have to do the most conservative thing, but we don't want to do that. And if you can help us, and I said, I'll be your guinea pig. I will not complain about anything. Minimize plastic, none if possible. The next time when I go to, when I go to pick up my stuff, you know, I'm the one who's getting the no plastic one. And the volunteers change all the time. So the volunteer that week, it's like, how'd you do this? How I want to do this. So there was latent demand that it would be easy to say, Josh, just stop bothering people. That's if you believe that if, you, if you've if you totally bonded the system that you've described, then exiting the system feels like a real pain in the butt. If you get out of that system, that system is just, it's what you talked about. It's it's shiny black rivers feeding going making the food
1: yep it feels so empowering and grounding you know to to write that email and and see the result of that and that is like something that then is addictive but in a good way <laughs> you know is just like oh i can send that email and things can change like oh i can do that in all different other facets of my life and different areas of sustainability so it's very empowering.
0: Well, we talked about the book, we talked about your research into the book, and now there's a commitment. So you'll come back. But before wrapping up, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or anything you want to share directly with listeners? Let
1: me think about that for a moment.
0: Oh, yeah. Wait, I'm going to ask you. How's Oprah? Oh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) you know what? She lived up to her extremely high expectation, is what I would say. You know, it was meeting her. There was some... And I'm not somebody that gets, you know, particularly excited by celebrity, but there was like... Really, something deep about her very aura that was, you know, matched up to to how she is presented, and so it was quite, I don't know, quite magical meeting her. You can clearly see that she's a, a deeply thinking and feeling person, and knows how to kind of share that compassion. So it was awesome.
0: <laughs> that was before the book, right?
1: That was before the book. Yes.
0: I'm curious. Did you get our copy of the book? I mean, fashion is a big thing for her. I mean, she what she wears and her effect on this nation is pretty significant.
1: Yes, her team does have the book, and they are looking at it right now. Actually,
0: <laughs> so we're going to see you on Oprah.
1: Well, I I don't know about that. Let's cross our fingers. But she does. I think she is such an important voice for these issues, and and that you know as a woman who, you know, has to present herself in a certain way. And I think as somebody who also has to deal with within sustainable fashion, there's also a lot of like size exclusion. So I think she's just a very good representative of, you know, the economic, social, racial issues that are embedded in our clothing as well and our clothing system and the psychological impact of all of that. So, I mean, yeah, she would be great.
0: <laughs> one of the things that's hit me recently is that, and I was about to wrap up, but I'm going to go on on this, that I, got, I was at a cocktail party the other day, very happy to be someplace. Everyone was uh, inoculated or vaccinated. And there's one guy's talking about the environment over and over. Like, I couldn't stop this conversation from happening. and And there's a bubble forming around us because he kept being like, what about this? What about this? And I'm like, let's talk about other things. And like, people are like, oh, they're talking about heavy stuff over there. And debate, I mean, People who know me, like the word convince, Vince is like vanquish. No one ever is like, I I don't know anyone who's ever been like, oh, you vanquished me. Now I agree with you. It it provokes debate. I think what, I don't want to overstate things, but I think what's mostly going to change is when, when, you know, they say you're the average of the five people that you spend most time with. When something like five people around you act, then you'll start acting. The number one predictor of people installing solar is how many of their neighbors have installed solar, not how much money they're going to save or government incentives. And what I wish I'd said to him after that, I was like, what could I say differently? And uh, Because I'm sure we've all had that conversation in some way. And it doesn't, people dig their heels in more. And what I'm going to practice saying now is just, here's what I do. I enjoy it. I'm one person you've met who feels that way. You may feel differently, but now you've met one person who acts that way. And soon there'll be another four and then you'll start changing too. But just I'm just one person who's made that change. Now, one of the big regular listeners to this podcast know that one of my big goals for this podcast is to bring in leaders such as yourself who other people can say that's someone in my in my circle, in my neighborhood, in my community that's acted. When I get Oprah on this podcast or I do a show with her, that's one person in the community of like 10 million people, 100 million people. And that kind of neighborhood community influence what she does, and whether she does something big or small, is less less material than if it's from her heart. Which is why I always start with what the environment means to someone. And it's, I guarantee it's going to be very different for her than it was for you, and as different for everyone. But when they hear that it's coming from the heart, not just someone told her to, you know, avoid straws, she may end up avoiding straws, but it'll be for intrinsic motivations, not extrinsic ones. And yeah, that that. Right now there's no one who's, uh, there are very few to zero role models who are sharing their vulnerabilities and flaws and and reasons for acting, not just, so it's clearly not just following a trend.
1: Absolutely. I agree agree with you. And I think that was also kind of the, the reason why the book was constructed in the way that it was is, you know, we talked a lot about issues, right? Like on this podcast, but the book is stories of people, you know, and the connections that you know, I was able to make from learning the stories about people. And so I do think I completely agree with you that we have to, it's not about debates. It's about the stories we tell and and the meaning we find in it. And if we get to that level of conversation, that's going to be a lot more productive.
0: I concur. And I mean, it is important to know the science and not to, I mean, Some stories, you can tell stories that are not grounded in (laughs) observation, but not to confuse learning the data with influencing one's own or other people's behavior.
1: Yes. There's a lot of data in the book, but it's always, you know, to, the story is told of the people. And then it's like, the data is there just to back up whatever it is, you know, that I um, heard or to provide context if it, if there was inconsistency.
0: So maybe the stories is that, that it's a book of stories is maybe the place to close unless there's something else to close on.
1: No, I think we've covered great ground.
0: <laughs> well, Maxine Beda, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you.
0: How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future. Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.